Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today, I'd like to pick up a question that was emailed in just a few days ago by somebody who has been uh, coming to All Saints uh, for a while, and um, I thought it was a good question. It concerns our liturgy, a uh, uh, portion of our liturgy. It's also a question that is sometimes asked from a theological perspective. And if you haven't already guessed what the question is from the title of this podcast, then I'm sure you'll be able to guess it when I read to you the portion of our liturgy which the question comes from. Uh, the question is prompted by something we sing from Psalm 51, immediately after our confession and our assurance of pardon. Let me read it to you. I'm not going to sing it to you. Sorry about that. Uh, no, not sorry. Just not going to sing it to you. Uh, but it reads as follows from Psalm 51 verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, <clears throat> pardon me, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There we are. I'm sure if you hadn't guessed already from the title of the podcast or the video, you could guess from those verses what the question was. It concerns verse 11. Uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me, which in the context of those uh, three verses and the psalm as a whole prompts questions like the following. Is it possible for somebody who has been filled with the Spirit to lose that gift of the Spirit? Or more broadly, is it possible for somebody who belongs to the living God to fall away or apostatize from uh, faith in Christ, from membership of the family of God and so on? Is it possible, in other words, for a believer to lose their salvation? And well, if it's not, then what on earth is David praying about here? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Goodness gracious, does that mean that we who are indwelled by the Spirit could have the Holy Spirit taken from us by the same God who gave him to us? Now, of course, this question is set against a background of a reformed confessional tradition in which we affirm what is sometimes called the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. Uh, I found people dividing roughly 50-50 into those who prefer to speak about the preservation of the saints, that is to say, the biblical teaching that God preserves his saints, having called them out of darkness into light, God preserves them uh, until the end, or the, the uh, perseverance of the saints, pardon me, the fact that the way that God preserves his saints is by causing them to persevere. I don't much mind which P you choose, um, but certainly that's in our Reformed Confessions. It's in the Synod of Dort, in the fifth point of the, the Canons of Dort. I certainly affirm it. And so what on earth's going on? Um, if it's true that God preserves those who are truly his, and if it's biblical to pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me, then how do you fit those two things together? So that's going to be the cluster of questions we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. So first up, let's get a couple of um, uh, theological and practical markers in the ground, just so we can orient ourselves rightly to this question. The first thing I want to affirm is that I unreservedly uh, and wholeheartedly affirm the Reformed doctrine of the preservation or perseverance of the saints understood in this way. Those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be called to saving and enduring faith in Christ by the Spirit those for whom Christ died in that sense, knowing that they had been called from before the foundation of the world, those people and all and only those people will be preserved 
by God and therefore will persevere to the end in faith and faithfulness and will be with the living God in glory forever. That's some, or something like that is uh, what I affirm by the doctrine of the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. That's the first theological stake in the ground that we want to make sure that we're not going to be budging. I could go to all kinds of biblical texts to talk about that, but I take it that that's actually not really in dispute by people who ask this question. Rather, that's the thing that prompts this question because of the apparent uh, danger of somebody falling away from the faith, as evidenced here. And I'm going to point you to some other texts in a moment that indicate something similar. But before we go to those texts, let's just reckon with the second uh, stake in the ground that needs to be um, marking out the landscape that we're working around when we consider this question. The inescapable and tragic fact is that it is true that some who profess faith in Christ, some who uh, were even among our number here at All Saints in the past, or in your church, wherever you are, or wherever you've been in the past, we all know or know of people who have professed faith in Christ, whose faith seemed genuine, uh, whose faith seemed like saving faith, but who now no longer profess faith in Christ and have turned away from the faith. Uh, that's the second thing that we've got to wrestle with. Um, the actual fact of people turning away from Christ. Now, what we call that, we may come to in a few minutes' time. But those are the things we've got to wrestle with. Uh, the theological reality, the theological truth of the preservation or perseverance of the saints, understood in the way that I articulated it, and the fact that some people turn away from the faith in the kind of way that uh, I described. Now, uh, a great resource for thinking through this question, I want to just um, turn to, I've got it actually open in front of me here, you can't see it, but this is uh, Peter Lightheart's book, uh, The Baptized Body, and in chapter four, the chapter is entitled Apostasy Happens. Apostasy is the, uh, the theological term for somebody who uh, turns away uh, from the previous profession of faith in Christ and does not return. Um, and I'm just going to uh, read and then skim a few sections just to give you a, a flavour of some of the background to this, which may be helpful to you. The experience that I just spoke to you about, the tragic and painful experience to contemplate of people who once professed faith in Christ turning away from him, is confirmed, quote, by multiple passages of the New Testament that both warn about the possibility of apostasy and give examples of apostates, end of quote. And Peter uh, then goes through citing uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the seed or the parable of the sower, the seed on rocky ground or the seed sown among thorns, uh, is looks for all the world like believing seed for a while. And certainly um, the seed, I believe it's a seed on among thorns in um, uh, Luke's version of the parable is described in the interpretation as corresponding to those who believe for a while. And so faith is attributed to them. Uh, Quoting a bit more again from the book, quote, according to Paul, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. First uh, Timothy 4.1, that's me quoting Peter, quoting Paul. Um, similarly, uh, Peter refers us to 2 Thessalonians 2.1-3, uh, to 1 Timothy 1.18-20, of course to the letter to the Hebrews, which he says, quote, is stuffed with warnings about apostasy. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 6, of course, famously, I'm going to turn to chapter 6 in my Bible because we're going to need to spend a little bit of time here. Um, but this is one of the places where this painful reality is most abundantly clear. 
um, where uh, it speaks of some who, in verse 6, fall away, having experienced all kinds of spiritual blessings previously as members of the church. They've been enlightened, tasted in the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fall away, verse 6. We could multiply passages. I'm not going to do so here. Well, no, I still will do one more. Um, second, second Peter uh, chapter 2, the first couple of verses, um, speaks of, well, I'll just read it and then I can comment on it. Um, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, so you've got then false teachers in the church paralleling the false prophets of ages past, who... Um, uh, not only uh, destroyed themselves, but uh, lead others into destruction and ruin as well. Others, presumably from the church, because we're also false prophets and false teachers going to be speaking. So notice what we've got so far then. We've got a biblical affirmation uh, that corresponds with the painful reality of Christian life, that many who profess faith, or at least some, I wouldn't want to say many actually, I retract that, uh, some at least who profess faith and seem to experience all kinds of uh, blessings from God as part of the church, uh, subsequently turn away from that faith and are uh, lost. In some cases, they never return to Christ. And you've got that alongside the um, uh, affirmation that those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight are brought to faith by Christ, for, uh, Christ died for them, and uh, the Spirit dwells in them to preserve them so that they persevere to the end. That's what we've got so far. Now, how do we bring all this stuff together? Well, one of the crucial things to do is to nuance precisely what it is that we're saying by the doctrine of the preservation or perseverance of the saints. What we are not saying is that everybody who claims to be or who seems to be a saint, uh, that is holy in Christ, that's language all over the New Testament, the saints of the church in Corinth are just every believer in Corinth, in the church, who is a saint because they're sanctified, the, the words are related in Greek, they're filled with the Spirit. We're not saying that everybody who is so described is one of those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, Ephesians 1. In other words, what we recognize is that built into the fabric of biblical eschatology, that is the doctrine of history, is a distinction within the church between those whom God knows are the seed on good soil and those whom God knows are tragically the seed among thorns or the seed on rocky ground. God knows those who are his in terms of his decree from before the foundations of the world. We might call those the decretally elect, referring to God's decree or decision or plan to choose whom to save. Those decretally elect are the ones to whom the doctrine of the preservation of the saints properly applies. 
the Reformed doctrine of the preservation of the saints should not be taken to suggest that all those who claim to be saints will be preserved. Then it's just patent empirical nonsense as well as uh, conflicting with scripture in the kind of way that you've seen. Um, what it actually refers to is to uh, those whom God has chosen, and it's really a statement about the uh, inviolability of the will of God and the unstoppability of the power of God. God, having chosen somebody from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, will not fail to cause them to be preserved, to cause them to persevere till the end. That's really the, the function, it seems to me, of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. But of course, what that does is that raises a whole bunch more questions. Because, well, first up, um, what kind of comfort does that, apply, does that um, entail for us, since it would appear that the doctrine of the preservation of the saints applies to a group of people whose identity cannot unfailingly be known by us before the end. And then secondly, related to that, well, um, what are we to make of the description of those people who fall away from Christ, uh, which seems to be pretty fulsome. If you think of uh, Hebrews 6, uh, they are described as, I'll read it again, uh, having uh, once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That seems like a fairly uh, wonderful and glorious description of what uh, those in the church receive who do fall away. Um, Peter, in his book, uh, Baptized Body, uh, expands on this further. They're baptized into the greater Moses, 1 Corinthians 10. They eat spiritual food and spirit, drink spiritual drink, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. They drink of Christ, same text, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Um, uh, they receive the word with joy and experience life and growth for a time, Matthew 13. They're branches in the vine who is Christ. All these are tremendous and glorious descriptions of the... Um, uh, experience, let's call it, of uh, those who are one with Christ or in the church, even temporarily. Hebrews 10 speaks again in similar terms. They're sanctified by the blood of the covenant, Hebrews 10, 29, which they subsequently go on to trample. So what do we make of those uh, rich and deep descriptions of the experience of God's presence? Into that category, we might um, put Psalm 51, uh, because, of course, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That belongs on that list of experiences and blessings. So we've got that question. First up, um, uh, what, what is the purpose and function of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints? How, what kind of assurance does it give? Then second, what do we make of these blessings which um, uh, are said to apply to those who are uh, chosen? chosen to be in Christ for a while? Do we say that? They profess faith for a while? What, how, do we how do we explain, how do we account for the fact that these, the description of them seems so rich and fulsome when they lose that experience? And then related to that, a third question, like what are we supposed to do about it? Um, you may have begun listening to this podcast with a, a kind of nice and neat, tidy uh, doctrine of the preservation of the saints, which sort of tells you that once you professed faith in Christ, that could 
that faith could never be taken from you. And it seems to be what, what I'm suggesting is I'm unpicking all that and trying to, and introducing distinctions which have a slightly unsettling effect. And it's not at all obvious to you what you should do in order to be preserved or to persevere through faith in Christ. Right, so you've got a whole cluster of questions. They might be all mixed up with other questions in your mind. It might not be very easy for you to tease them apart. And what I want to do, if you'll permit me, how long have we been going? Oh, just a few minutes, a quarter of an hour or so. Give me five minutes more, and I'm going to try and give you a way of understanding this, which I hope will be theologically uh, clear enough, at least. And most importantly, for the purposes of practical Christian discipleship, useful to you in growing in your faith and persevering and being preserved in your faith for the whole of the rest of your lives. First up, let's um, just take half a step back and deal with some uh, basic theological commitments and convictions. It's true that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world a great number of people who have been in his mind decreed infallibly for adoption as his children, uh, faith and faithfulness throughout their lives, and everlasting glory. Let's call those the elect or the decretally elect, those whom God has decreed. Those are the ones to whom the doctrine of the preservation or perseverance of the saints applies. That's true. It is also true that we don't know who those people are. Or more properly, we don't know infallibly in the way that God only knows who those people are. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, belong to the Lord our God, not to us. The things revealed belong to, his, to us and to his children forever. So God has this, if you like, secret list of those whom he is saving. How does he disclose this to us? The answer is gradually, gradually throughout history, piece by piece. The way it works, of course, is that we see as history works out and unfolds, those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, who before he had chosen were hidden from us, we see those people added to our number. People in the book of Acts or at the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. What we see in history is an outworking of God's decree from eternity. We don't see it all fully. We'll see it all fully on the last day. We see 1 Corinthians 13, talking in a slightly different context probably, but we see as through a glass darkly, then we shall see in full. But we do see something. Uh, you've seen uh, some of those whom God has called to himself being called to him. You've seen, in fact, some die in Christ. Some of your friends and relatives, older brothers and sisters in Christ, and elderly saints who are now with Christ. You've seen the Lord's plan for their lives, at least in those broad details. What we also see unfolding are those other elements of God's plan where God does choose to draw some of them, some people to him for a while. And then for reasons which must be good in his sight, because all things in the end are good in the sense of being uh, sufficiently warranted in his sight, the Lord allows them or causes them to turn away from him. 
Romans 9, for, for mysterious reasons, some of which are disclosed at least partially in Romans 9. But can you see what we experience throughout history is the gradual unfolding of God's plan. In fact, more broadly, that's what history is. God's decree, God's plan, is a plan for the whole of human history. We see that plan gradually unfolded before us. We know that God's plan for those who he has determined to save is inviolable, just as his plan for those whom God has chosen not to save is inviolable. Uh, nothing can resist his will. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints assures us that those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to persevere will persevere, and we see that gradually working out. So that's what history is. Our knowledge is partial, but gradually growing as we see time and space unfolding. So that then brings us, with a massive crunch in the gears, to what we might call the assurance question. And perhaps it also raises the question of, well, why does God uh, describe in such rich and full terms the experience of those who are in the church, but only for a while? Well, let's try and answer both those questions together. Going back now to Psalm 51, uh, those who are part of the community of the people of God, as David uh, certainly was, David prays, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, implying, presumably, that he, who was a member of the people of God, and all others in the, uh, the old covenant church, Ecclesia, or Kahal, the gathering of the people of God, were drawn there and kept there by the Spirit. Uh, we've got all these descriptions. Um, again, I've read it in Hebrews 6, but there are others elsewhere, which I, I cited to you from uh, Peter's book, pages 90 and 91 these descriptions of the experience of those who are in the church, why would scripture describe their experience in that way? The answer is quite simply because that's their experience. Someone who is uh, drawn into the church experiences life and growth. They are branches in the vine. They pass through the waters of baptism. They've eaten spiritual food and tasted spiritual drink, which is Christ. They've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the powers of the coming age, partaken of the spirit, received heavenly blessings. They're sanctified by the blood of the covenant. They've escaped the defilement of the world, 2 Peter 2.20. They know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, same text. They know the way of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.21. That's all the references in Peter Lightheart's book in those bullet points on pages 90 and 91. Why would scripture describe the experience of all those in the church in that way? The answer is because that's their experience. And it is possible to experience things like that temporarily for a time. That is the inescapable conclusion to which scripture drives us with this insistence that even those who are in the church temporarily, maybe for months or years or maybe decades, do experience something of Christ. The temptation, of course, is to say, well, it's not real. It's not genuine. They're not actually sanctified by the blood of the covenants. They've not really escaped the defilements of the world. They're not really got life. They're not really branches in the vine and so on. And at this point, I've got to disagree and say, if your systematic theology disagrees with the Bible, change your theology. We must be ready to describe in biblical terms 
uh, the people whom God has gathered to himself. In fact, we must be ready to, to describe everything that we see in biblical terms. The key difference between the experience of those who are in the church temporarily and those who are in the church permanently is the temporiness of the experience of those who turn away from Christ after a while. That faith that they had in Luke's account of Jesus' parable of the sower is temporary faith. Their escape from the defilements of the world is temporary. Their sanctification is temporary. They're eating spiritual food and tasting spiritual drink and sharing in Christ and enlightenment and enjoyment of the heavenly gift and partaking in the powers of the age to come. And their gift of the spirit is temporary. And that claim comes simply from the insistence that we must do justice to what scripture actually says when it speaks of people who tragically experience those things for a time. Now, a uh, couple of other questions then arise and we're going to get to the, yeah, but what shall I do question, I promise, right at the end. Um, a couple of other questions arise uh, at this point because some want to drill down to the next level and say, okay, so you've got somebody who is destined for eternal glory in Christ, one of the decretally elect on the one hand, and somebody who is, for God's own reasons and in God's mysterious providence, destined to have faith for a time, on the other hand, you've got two people. Now, before they pass, before the, the second person turns away from Christ, how do you compare their experience? Is the only difference between person A and person B's experience of Christ, the temporiness of the one who passes away. And at that point, I want to say, no, of course not. Of course not. Of course the experience of Christ enjoyed by somebody who is destined to fall away, but before they do so, is different from the experience of Christ enjoyed by somebody who is destined to persevere or be preserved. Of course those two are different. The reason I know that is because those two people are different. And everybody's experience of Christ is different from everybody else's because everybody is a different person. All these are relational qualities, relational experiences. When I eat and when you eat, we experience something that's different. No, some senses it's the same. We might be eating from the same loaf. But your experience of Christ in eating is different from my experience of Christ in eating simply because you're different from me. All of us have a different relationship with Christ in that respect. And so, of course, it's the case that uh, in qualitative terms at that moment or at those moments, before a person who is destined to apostatize does so, uh, their experience of Christ at that time is different from the experience of people who are destined to persevere. I don't want to say that just on the grounds that those people are different. Are they qualitatively different so that they fit into different categories? Uh, so that the experience of all those who are destined to persevere is qualitatively similar Whereas the, dis destined, the, the experience of those who are destined not to do so is also qualitatively similar. I'm not sure about that. I think 
Uh, it might be possible to articulate in philosophical terms the way in which people's experience falls into two categories like that, simply because we're asking now a question from God's point of view, and from God's point of view, the future is taken into account in describing the present. So the future faithlessness of an apostate who hasn't yet apostatized tracks back into God's description of their present status. But all that is really getting pretty rarefied and esoteric. And I can imagine that quite a lot of you have now clicked stop on this podcast already and have now gone on to listen to something else. If you've not, then let me get back on track with you because what's the thing that matters to you crucially at this point? Here you are, you're a believer, uh, you profess faith in Christ, perhaps you've done so for a number of years, you've been growing in your faith in all kinds of different ways. You might recently have joined All Saints, you might be um, asking questions about joining the church. You might you might even have this theological question. And you, you want to know, okay, I, I think I can see the kind of theological landscape a little bit. What, it, what should I do? What should I do to make sure, if that's not um, an improper way of thinking, to make sure that I'm one of those who perseveres? And again, we just turn straight to the scriptures. Let me just turn you to Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite texts in thinking about this um, issue. And just listen carefully to what Paul the Apostle says. I'll read it to you from verse 21. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's just pause there a second. Who's he talking about? Well, plainly, he's talking about those who once were alienated and hostile in mind and evil, unbelievers, who have now been reconciled through Christ to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those who have been called to faith in Christ, those who have been sanctified, holy and blameless. Holy just means sanctified, filled with the Spirit. That's what the text says, right? It's talking about unbelievers who become believers, people who weren't in the church who were in the church. Dare we say it, those who are... Um, not elect. No, that's not right. Those who you would have looked at and said, hmm, they look like they're not elect. That's the right way of putting it. Who now you look at, now they're in the church, and you say, yeah, these look like they're elect. Yeah? Previously unbelievers, as far as we could tell, not chosen by God from our judgment of their presence state now been brought into the church we look at them we think yes they look like they've been chosen by god that's you right if you're the person who asked this question he has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him but i cut the reading halfway through a sentence look at verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard if indeed you continue in your faith so where does that place us? Simply with precisely the same obligation that you already knew you already have. We are called to live by enduring faith in Christ. These things are true of those who are in the church who hear them, to whom the letter would originally have been read. They're true of you if you're in the church and you're hearing them. And they will remain true of you to the extent that, and because 
you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It's true that you have been sanctified, made holy in Christ, if you are in communion with him in a church. It's true that you will remain so if you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. I can give you no assurance of your future destiny that will remain true irrespective of your future deeds. Nobody can give you any assurance of that. And that's sometimes what people are mistakenly looking for when they ask this assurance question. But I can very definitely give you an assurance of your future glory if you remain in the faith which you now have. Stable and steadfast, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the contingency of all our knowledge of things. We don't know the future. We can only make statements about the future that are conditional on other things being true. I can only make statements about my future on the assumption that other things are true. I can certainly make this statement about your future that you will remain holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, which is what it says. Think about the alternative. You don't want me to give you a doctrine of assurance whereby I would be able to assure you of your future glory irrespective of whether you continue to believe in Jesus. That would not be a biblical doctrine of assurance, would it? It turns out that the way that preservation works is lockstep with perseverance. God preserves those who persevere, and he does so by causing them to persevere. And if you remain stable and steadfast in your faith, then you will discover on the last day that the Lord was preserving you stable and steadfast in your faith every day of your life from the day you first believed until the very end. And that's how we should approach this assurance question. What it speaks to, just returning to the question with which we began, and we'll conclude with this, just looking at the time uh, that we've had on this question, we've probably had almost long enough. What this really speaks to is the immense privilege of being a member of the church, the body of Christ. David in Psalm 51, Paul and Peter and Jesus uh, in those various texts that we've cited uh, in the last half hour or so speak of the tremendous blessings of being a member of the community of those who are in Christ. And we are called to remain faithful, uh, which is the same thing as saying we are called to have faith, same words and uh, interlocking concepts, um, uh, same words in Greek and Hebrew, pardon me, and interlocking concepts, uh, the kind of faith that saves is faithful faith. Um, we are called to remain faithful members of the body of Christ. And this places in that position of just knowing that what I need to do today is to trust Jesus. What I need to do today is to remain faithful to Jesus. I know what I'm called to do. I know how I'm called to love my wife, my children. Uh, if you're a woman, you're married, your husband. Um, you know how you're called to love others around you. You know how you're called to serve, to work hard, to be cheerful, to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, um, gentleness and self-control. Um, you know how you're called to keep trusting and keep remaining faithful to the one who shed his blood for you. And if you just do that today, then these words remain true of you this evening. And then you get up tomorrow and do the same thing again. And we keep doing that 
until the end of our lives. And we'll discover at that point that before the foundation of the world, the Lord chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Hopefully that's helped our questioner enough to at least answer portions of that question. And maybe it's been helpful to the rest of you. Uh, this may raise other questions, of course, in which case just give me a call. Always great to hear from you. Uh, for now, though, I think that'll do us. God bless and bye for now. Thank you.